I thought this evening I would talk on the subject of Dana, Sila, and Bhavana. So Dana is the uh, Pali word that means generosity. And Sila is the Pali word that means uh, morality or ethics. And Bhavana is the topic of cultivation. And I want to start this evening by sharing an experience I had today. So this is the first time I've been to New Mexico. And I've just come back to the States. I've been now here about a month. And uh, I am interested in establishing a monastery for nuns to train. And one of the principles of a monastery is, is that we live on alms. So everything that we have comes as a result of free will donations. So the food that we eat the robes that we have, the medicine that we have, the shelter that we have. Every single thing that we have comes because of the kindness and generosity of people either offering it directly or making funds available so that it can be purchased. So um, part of the tradition that is, is is that we have alms bowls and we go on alms round. And in England, after now the community being there for 30 years, there's a a culture of people going on what is known as faith bindabat. So bindabat is the is the Thai word that means alms round. And people would go into villages with their alms bowls and usually stand in an area near a kind of a grocery store, supermarket, or pastry store or something like that, and then move around and then see what happens. Now in England, it's not a Buddhist country, just like in America, it's not a Buddhist country, but you have a bald-headed, robed being with an alms pole standing there, and people, even in England, are curious. (laughs) And are trying to figure out, well, what are you doing there? So oftentimes, people will come up and they say, you know, can I give you some money? And and then then I, I can say, well, I'm actually not allowed to receive money. And then some people will think, well, then what are you doing here? You know, what, why are you standing here and why do you look like that? And what is this for? And then if a person asks a question, then we're in a position to be able to respond. But if a person doesn't ask, we're not in a position to respond because it's within our monastic discipline that we do not solicit We do not proselytize. We do not talk on the Dhamma unless we're invited to do so. And we certainly don't ask for anything without there being an invitation. Either directly, can I support you with your needs or what is it that you're doing and is there any way that I can help you? So it's a very interesting culture. You know, we have an American culture that's a kind of an out there culture in some ways, and a, a Theravadan culture, which is a very kind of quiet, uh, res- uh, um, what's the word? Um, cautious. Cautious about presenting our needs in a position where our needs are not obviously going to be uh, taken care of. So in a Thai culture, or in a Sri Lankan culture, what happens is the monks and nuns who have alms bowls, they walk usually at a designated time through the streets, and the storekeepers or the home 
people in the house they know and they have prepared food and they make the food available and then the uh, monks and nuns go back to the monastery and they share out what's there to everybody as well as there's often things that are prepared in the monastery and so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a lovely system and in the northeast Thailand particularly oh, 20 years ago or so it was a very poor part of Thailand and so what would happen was is a family would bring a dish, like a papaya dish or a rice dish or some kind of a dish, and then whatever leftovers were, were, they would split them up so that whoever came to the monastery would get whatever leftovers were left. And they would go back to their families with a complete nutritious meal. So in a poor uh, area... Um, there were all kinds of benefits that would come from participating in this, not to mention there's a rich culture that it gets established about coming to the monastery and sharing alms and taking precepts and spending time meditating and supporting the monastics. So today I took my alms bowl and went down into, I guess, Knob Hill? Yeah. In front of the co-op, <laughs> and did the New Mexico version of alms round, which is I stand there quietly with my alms bowl and see what happens. And most everybody coming into the co-op were very friendly, you know, and happy to see me. And you know, and people were kind and 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 gentle and generous in their responsiveness to me. And as often the case, they didn't they didn't have a clue in the world what I was doing there or why I was there or even asked yeah except for one yeah so there was one fellow who asked and then he said oh he said yes and I can help you with that so he just gone into the store to get a whole big pile of of uh, fruit and vegetables because he wanted to juice them up and so he he offered some some things in my bowl and so I was there and then I walked to a park and I had a meal and it was lovely but people can see, oh, you're a meditator or you're a monk. And so the, the culture here, the thing that interests us is meditation. That's the thing that gravitates, it captivates our attention, activates our interests. And that's the place where we're interested. We want to meditate. And so people can come and they can ask questions about meditation and do. And it's lovely. But in an Asian culture, the practice starts with the practice of dana. And it is so strong that when a mother has a baby, brand new baby, usually, or, or not usually, but often enough, the very first thing on the way home from the, from the hospital is to the monastery. The first sight, the first contact is the monastery, to have contact with the, that which represents awakening. Yeah, and when the baby is teeny, 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 tiny, just months old, the family comes with the baby, and in the alms round, they put, they hold the baby's hand with a spoon of rice, and they pour the rice into the alms bowl. So, like the first learning is of giving. You know, this is the first thing to learn to give. And in an Asian culture, you know, in a in Thailand, for example, generosity is practiced to an extraordinary degree. And it is really impressive to see the way the culture just understands this as a principle that's worth cultivating and how they gather around and make a joyous occasion out of the possibility of giving. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's quite, uh, you know, it's, it's noteworthy to see the differences between what happens, for example, in England when you have a whole variety of different cultures coming to the monastery to give. So an English person wants to come and, and put an offering in the pantry without anybody seeing, you know. And a Sri Lankan or a Thai person, they put a, a symbolic offering on a tray and they want everyone to touch it, that they have somehow participated in this offering. They have added their contribution of being present and of making this something that is offered to the, to the community. And so you can see that the cultural values of the way we are uh, taught have an effect about the way we feel about all these things. Now, tomorrow night, I'm going to show a, a DVD and give a talk. It's about a ceremony that took place at the monastery. And this was an occasion where people came together specifically for the purpose of making an occasion out of giving. It's called an almsgiving ceremony. And people came from all over. They came in buses from France. And there were Laotian people and Sri Lankan people and Thai people and Burmese people and Cambodian people and Western people. And people came from Scotland and they came from all over the place. And the only reason why they came to the monastery was for the extraordinary joy of what it is to come together and give. And you can see in this DVD the kind of joy in people's faces of what it is when they come together for the explicit and sole purpose of in the pleasure of being together in the joy of giving. Now, one of the ways in which a monastic community can serve as a really um, powerful reminder for an extended community is because the fact that we live entirely on free will donations requires a context where our survival is dependent on generosity of others in order for us to live. And so there's a natural kind of arena through which generosity needs to happen for the very simple things of eating, you know, and making a, a monastery function. You know, it just, it can, it only functions because of generosity. And so, one of the ways in which uh, the sight or the symbol of a monk or a nun can be uplifting is because if you see an alms mendicant who you know lives on alms, you can say that this person's life is the result of the sum total generosity of everyone and everything that has been offered for the entire duration that they have lived as an alms mendicant. And when we feel crabby and grumpy about how terrible things are going in the world, and we have plenty of reason to feel that way, but we turn our attention to the fact that there are people living who are living solely on the generosity of others' kindness, it begins to have a different feeling in the heart, you know, about how we feel about what's actually happening in this world. Now, I had enough to eat today, all right? This is New Mexico. This is the first time I've ever been here. Nobody has a clue in the world who I am, what I'm doing, what my precepts are, or the fact that if I didn't get food by 1 o'clock, I wouldn't have food until the next day. Okay? But I had enough to eat today. That's extraordinary. Okay? It really is. It is truly extraordinary. Last week, I was in Colorado Springs, and I did the same. 
I went on alms round and I went downtown and I looked around and I thought, this isn't going to work. So somebody had offered me a bicycle a couple days before and I got on the bike and I rode up to another part of town where they had King Supers and Mountain Mamas. So I parked the bike, mocked the bike, got my robe and got my ball and I went in front of King Supers and two days before, the week before, I had done a day-long sitting at a place that has just been opened up. And within two minutes of standing in front of King Supers, one of the people who was on the day-long retreat came and looked at me and he says, I know that I'm going to need to bring some more food for you when I come out. (laughs) And I thought, you know, blessed be. (laughs) Because that day, the food that was offered during alms round was the only food that I was going to eat that day. And that is often, or can be, the occasion. So sometimes what happens for monks and nuns is we take our alms bowls and we go on what is known as tudong, which is the monastic equivalent of backpacking through the countryside. Now, in the States, it would be a little bit tough because the distances are so enormous. But in England, there's footpaths and villages everywhere. And it's very possible to walk and stay in churches or in cemeteries or just rough and then go for alms round in the villages. And I have gone on alms round for a week or ten days, and two sisters, or four sisters, just came back, two each, from one month period of time, and basically the only food that they had to eat during a month was the food that was offered to them during those alms rounds. Okay? So there's something about what happens when you put yourself out there in a vulnerable situation, living a life that is actually based on simplicity and renunciation and integrity. And there's something about the archetype of a shaven head and robes and an alms bowl that even in cultures that have no traditional association with that, there can be a response that is generous and kind and supportive and interested and willing to find out uh, what's needed. And I've had extraordinary experiences doing this, and part of the reason why I continue to do it, even though sometimes, like, you know, on a hot day, you know, it's like, well, there might be other more comfortable things to be doing on a hot day, you know. And I was living in Toronto for a while, and it was not an easy time for me internally. I was going through a rough time, and I didn't have a lot of support. There wasn't a community supporting me, and I wasn't close to a monastic community. I was very much on my own. And I made a point of going on alms round every single week. And in Toronto, there was a farmer's market. And I went to the farmer's market every single week. And as it turned out, the food that was offered during that alms round once a week ended up being much of the food that I ate. Okay? So it was sustaining me. And one day I went, and as was the case, I was standing there not saying anything, and a person came up, and she said, tried to put money in my bowl, and I said that I wasn't able to receive it. And she said, well, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is for the alms food for the, my meal for the day. And so she went back into the farmer's market, and she came back with two entire bags of groceries, and she offered them to me. And I said, well, you know, normally what happens when an offering is made is, is that we chant a blessing. Would you be okay with me chanting a blessing? And she said, yeah, that would be fine. So I said, okay. So I said, well, just allow your attention to rest in the goodness of your heart, that has brought forth this generosity. 
I've known her 30 seconds. We're standing in the middle of Farmer's Market in downtown Toronto. And the floodgates just started open. And she just started pouring tears. And so I'm chanting, and she's pouring tears. And I finish the chanting, and she says, thank you. And I think, she's just giving me two bags of groceries. I've known her for 30 seconds. And she leaves, and she says, thank you. And there's something about this which is so beautiful because it's so unpresumed. I have no expectation that I eat. I have no expectation that people respond. I have no expectation that anything happen. And yet, I have been living this way for 20 years, you know. And for large sections of that time, I have been living rough, you know, without knowing how I'm going to live, without knowing where I'm going to eat, without knowing where I'm going to stay, you know. And somehow or another, it has worked. So dana is a field that is an important field to cultivate. And one of the reasons why it's given one of the highest priorities in the paramitas is because the cultivation of generosity gives us access to our own innate goodness directly. When we give, we actually are the primary recipient of the benefit because we have direct access to our own goodness. One of the reasons why that is so incredibly important is because anybody who spent more than five minutes sitting on the cushion knows there are times when the things that we experience are really challenging. And unless we have direct access to our own goodness, we engage in a battle rather than find a way of opening to what is arising with kindness, with gentleness, with respect, with compassion and wisdom. So our goodness becomes the ground of being from which everything else can emerge. So the classic training is you first start with dhamma. And then when we start understanding what it is to feel good, then it's natural that we reflect that when we don't feel good, we don't like that feeling and we want to do what we can not to have that. So it's a kind of cause and effect kind of relationship. And so we can see that when we say things that are rude or aggressive or divisive, you know, it doesn't leave a nice feeling. And then we sit down on a cushion and it goes around and 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 around. And so there's a natural continuum between having access to one's own goodness and wanting to live in a way where we're not experiencing remorse or regret from the things that we do or the things that we say or the way that we live or our livelihood. And so the whole concept of living without harm, living without harming any other living being, is the basis of the precepts to support in a more refined way around areas around behavior or what's appropriate, what's not appropriate as reflections rather than commandments so that we can live with more and more sense of 
lack of remorse. More and more sense of feeling confident and more and more sense of being able to continue to come back and trust. Yes, there's goodness in our hearts. Now, many of us take it for granted. You know, I would venture to say that in this group, most likely, nobody has murdered anybody. Am I correct? (laughs) As a best guess. (laughs) And yet, how many in this group have actually reflected on the fact that no one, or we, or you, haven't actually taken the life of any other living being today? So it almost becomes like the fabric that goes unacknowledged. And that's actually something to remember. Because particularly when we're feeling low or down or depressed or we're feeling sick or things are not going well for ourselves, there's a whole basis of goodness that's in place that we completely overlook as just being the norm. And it's important not for it just to be considered the norm because there are plenty of people in this world for whom they cannot say they did not take the life of any living being in one particular day. So when we reflect on our moral integrity, we can use it in order to allow our own sense of well-being and goodness to brighten that we can actually feel the sense of confidence about what we're doing rather than our attention focusing on the one bit that's actually irritating or not going well or we feel disturbed by. Now, one of the things that happens in a traditional culture, which is actually something that all of us could make use of, is is, is that particularly in a Sri Lankan culture, they have what is known as a good karma book. And we would think, oh, come on, give me a break. But it's actually very, very skillful. The culture is based on the principle of dana and generosity. And any time anybody, a member of the family or the family as a group, makes a significant effort to do something that's kind or generous, they write it down in a book and they date it. And then when a person's feeling down or depressed or they're sick or when they are dying... They go through their good karma book and they read it. And they remember all of the things that they have done their whole life that has been kind and generous and supportive of something that is very uplifting to the heart. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us would benefit from something like this. Now, I was staying at a Baigiri monastery for six months a number of years ago and there was somebody who was a friend and she was talking to me about the predicament that she was experiencing and I was, in the same way that I am now, encouraging her. And her face looked like I just asked her to clean out the, 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 the pit toilet without any gloves on, you know. For her to contemplate her own goodness was such a shock to her system and so revolting. It was like, 
it, it just took an enormous amount for her to begin to consider that that actually might be something worth her while. And it points to a, a deep-seated um, characteristic that for many people is unfortunately endemic. And it has to do with the sense of self-hatred. How on earth can I contemplate my own goodness when I feel so bad? So when we begin to practice, when we begin to cultivate meditation, we really need to develop resources for picking up some of this stuff and, and allowing it to release in a way where we're not solidifying a sense of self in the wrong way, but we're also recognizing the kind of conditions that we're working with and we're allowing them to soften and not be the predominating things that drive us. There is nothing that is unwholesome about contemplating one's own goodness and the good things that one has done. That's not pride. And that's not conceit. And it's done specifically so that we can begin to feel confident. And that confidence then gives us the capacity to open up to other things which are difficult to open up to. But we don't like to. It doesn't come easily. It's not something we naturally would find ourselves doing. And yet, check it out. Is it something that feels like it might be worthwhile? You know? So Donna generosity creates the context where sila or morality naturally unfolds. Because when we're connected to our own goodness, it's natural that we want to protect that. And the way we protect that is by living in a way that actually allows a sense of ease and well-being for ourselves and other people to follow. And so the five precepts, to refrain from taking life, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from speaking lies or divisively or slander or some stuff which is useless. And the fifth precept is to refrain from alcohol or drugs or drink. All of these things create a context or a container that ends up meaning that the very first precept, which is not to harm, is one that we can actually keep. So it makes sense. So these then create a container and a context through which then it is possible to practice. Because without that, we don't have a lot of ground. And so then when we practice, when we come and sit and we're attending to what's arising, we have as a ground a deep sense or a connection to the fact that we have goodness, that we live with integrity, and that we are committed to non-harming. From that perspective, we can begin the process of looking at what is actually happening in our experience and how is it that things have gotten into such a muddle where there's so much suffering. And if we apply the teachings like the Four Noble Truths, we can see that the problem isn't with what's arising, The problem is in the way that we're relating to what's arising. 
So we can have sickness and we can have illness and we can have moods that are low and we can have parents that are getting sick or dying. We can have economic situations in the country which are unstable. In themselves are not a problem. The problem is not wanting them to be there. Somehow wishing it was otherwise. Expecting that our bodies not get old. Expecting that our bodies not experience pain. Expecting that we should always feel bright and light and happy and cheerful at all times under all circumstances. Expecting relationships to be stable and fulfilling when their nature is is that they change. And so when we are able to bring to what our living experience is from this basis of having some source, then it makes it a lot easier to be able to bring our attention to the problem at hand and focus there. So Dana supports Sila, and that supports Bhavana, the practice. The practice illuminates our relationship between all things, and it makes it obvious that it's important to be generous. It makes it obvious that it's important to live with integrity. Now, I started meditating in 1979 when I was 17 years old. And when I started, I had this idea, like I said last night, you know, the harder I try, the more I do, then the better it will be. And, like, get me out of here, you know? This life is tough, it's hard, and I want out. And so I thought if I tried and did everything that everyone told me and I applied myself in the meditation, then I would become enlightened and I wouldn't have any more problems and everyone would love me. (laughs) And so I tried and 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 I tried some more. And it's not as if I didn't have clear insights that were deeply transformative. But I suffered so much still and I couldn't understand why am I suffering so much. You know? I'm trying. In fact, I'm really trying. In fact, I'm trying so hard. And then there was some kind of a recognition or something wrong in the way that I'm trying. There's something in the trying itself which is actually hardening me to what it is that I'm experiencing which is participating in the problem. So after about 20 years of trying and trying harder, there was this recognition there has to be another approach for me. It doesn't necessarily have to be for other people, but for me there has to be another approach. And so it was at this time I went to Gampo Abbey, and at this time I met a sister, and she gave me a Kuan Yin, and it was the first time I had a Kuan Yin statue. And I had this resonance of, oh, there's, there's a force field that you can relax into that isn't your own will that's driving things. And what is that? Well, for me, the only language that I had for it was love. If one relaxes into a field of love, it's a completely different experience than if one is driven in order to have certain experiences in order that one doesn't suffer any longer. 
So it was at that time that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was coming to the States and there was a teacher's meeting and then there were a number of monastics that went to Los Angeles for his teachings and and many took the Bodhisattva vows, including myself. And I knew that that was going to be a significant thing for me. And it was. Because there was a, a kind of a shift in my approach. And then from that, I went into the bush in Australia. And when I got to the bush in Australia, I started with a sense of, well, I'll keep the structure and I'll read the Vinaya and I'll do the suttas and I'll I'll walk and I'll sit and 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 I'll read and I'll walk and I'll sit and I'll walk and I'll sit and I'll walk and I'll sit and I'll read. And it was like I needed to have structure that was familiar to me in order to feel comfortable in a place that was very unfamiliar. And so I did that for a while. But before I started all of that, I started with paying respects to the ancestors of the land and chanting Omani Padme Hom for many times and just bowing, just bowing, just bowing. And so I did this bit where I was doing my routine thing and that lasted for a while. And then because I felt so comfortable with the land, I felt like, well, maybe I can relax, actually. And that this structure is actually an external structure that I'm imposing on myself, and it might actually not be what's needed. But because what had happened was there was a reorientation of view around the path, and there was an interest to begin to see what is it like just to receive things in awareness with kindness and respect without asking anything. What happens? my whole relationship with practice started to change. And being in the bush started as me being in the bush and then me being in friendly bush and then me being with family. And then the me started to soften. And then there was just more and more and more and more and more a sense of nature It wasn't external nature or internal nature. It was just nature. Nature that was arising as body sensation. Nature that was arising as memory or thought or feeling or perception. Nature that was arising as cloud or tree or goanna or snake or water. And I could see that there was nothing where I could create a line and say this is where I end and this is where that begins. And in that experience of being nature, watching nature, seeing nature arise and cease, there was no limit to the place where the care and the concern naturally wants to follow and flow. So, our hands, if something happens to our hands, we take care. If something happens to our feet, we take care. We take care because it belongs. We take care of family because they belong. We take care of sangha because they belong. But what happens when there's no edge of what belongs? When everything belongs? When everyone belongs? So in a space of understanding that there me arises dependent on conditions, 
it doesn't have an inherent existence, then it's natural that the capacity to live with respect and kindness and compassion is the way one wants to live. Because everything belongs. Dhamma, Sila, and Bhavana are non-trivial topics. Dhamma is not a trivial topic. And neither is Sila. To live one's life only around the principle of non-harming. Imagine. Imagine what that would be like to live where we did not follow any single thought or any single action that was in any way harmful to ourselves, to another living being, to the community that we are a part of, or to this world. For many of us, there's a resonance with wanting to be able to do that. And for many of us, what gets in the way of being able to do this is not our aspiration, but our skill in being able to work with the emotional patterns that arise that block us from being able to do what we want. I would venture to say that for most of us, we would be pretty clear if we were handed a piece of paper and asked to write, you know, how would we like to live? What kind of things would we like to do? And what kind of things would we like to avoid doing? But in the heat of the moment, when we're feeling crappy or irritated or furious, or as somebody said today, you know, when it gets hot like this, you feel like you want to bite a rattlesnake, you know? It's so irritating sometimes just to be so hot, you know. But how do you manage those experiences of being so irritated and still do what one feels is the right thing to do? So one cannot superimpose an idea of how it's supposed to be on top of our internal landscape and come up with a living response to what's arising. What is needed is skill. What is needed is compassion. And what is needed is resource. And that takes us back to having access to our own goodness, to living with integrity, and being able to cultivate and practice in a way that supports living so that we can realize what we're actually made out of so that we in fact live with the deepest understanding coming into fruition so maybe that's enough for an evening for a talk 
and then we can change the format and open it up and have a time for questions, discussions, comments, responses, your own personal stories, things that you disagree with, things that you agree with, or just stories that you have about what it is like to live and contemplate, share in this way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.